Welcome to the second episode in a podcast series brought to you by the International Arbitration Group at Denton's. With more than 40 partners and 120 lawyers, our group is widely recognized globally, trusted by corporations, states, and high net worth individuals for their most challenging international arbitration matters. Today, we will be discussing developments from arbitral institutions. I'm Rachel Howie, a partner at Denton's based in the Calgary office and a co-lead for Denton's Canada Region's International Arbitration Group. And joining me today in co-hosting is Amy Kleisner. Hi, Rachel. I'm Amy Kleisner. I'm co-head of the Arbitration Group in Germany, and I'd like to introduce our guest, Robert Rhoda. Robert is a partner in Denton's Hong Kong office. He's originally from London. Robert has practiced in Hong Kong for 12 years, and he acts as counsel and as arbitrator in international arbitrations, typically involving disputes in the financial services, technology, and energy sectors. Welcome, Robert. Hello from Hong Kong, and thank you very much for having me. Excellent. So setting the stage, in the last episode, we looked at whether the pandemic experience has impacted our choice of arbitration or litigation. Today, we want to focus in on institutional arbitration. What's happening there? Has anything changed? What challenges are the arbitral institutions facing? So Robert, how do you feel the institutions are reacting? Um, well, first of all, let's not forget that arbitral institutions are places of work. Um, like any other organization. They're spread across the globe. Uh, they're experiencing the same disruption as other organizations. Some um, are physically closed. Um, most, if not all, are working either, um, are, are working remotely either in whole or in part. Um, and they have the unenviable task in those circumstances of continuing to administer complex uh, international arbitrations. Now, it's that aspect, the administering of international arbitration, which uh, we're interested in. Um, and of course, those institutions are having to manage cases when all the participants in the process are affected in one way or another. Um, and when in certain instances, uh, the arbitral centers uh, may be closed. I think probably the single biggest challenge um, is of course, ensuring that hearings particularly merits hearings, can go ahead with minimal disruption. Now, the significant challenge here, it, it's, it's probably rather obvious, but it's still worth stating, is that the major stakeholders in the arbitration process, so the parties, the witnesses, um, their counsel, and of course the tribunals, are likely to be spread out geographically and therefore unable to travel and therefore unable to come together for a physical hearing. Now, even where those same stakeholders are based uh, geographically in the same place, um, they may well be prevented by local uh, social distancing and other health restrictions from meeting together. And looking at those uh, steps that the institutions have taken to adapt, how, how do they compare? Do they generally cover the same things or are there key themes or differences amongst the institutions? So what, what we're noticing is, um, first of all, and I think m most notably um, from my point of view, is, is we're seeing you know, real collaboration among the arbitral institutions. Um, the most obvious example is in April, uh, 13 leading um, arbitral institutions, including the ICC, um, the HK, that's the Hong Kong International Arbitration Centre, the Singapore International Arbitration Centre and, and the LCIA in London, um, they issued a joint um, statement. Uh, and what that joint statement did was it, 
it expressed a joint ambition um, to ensure that pending cases uh, continue um, and are heard without undue delay. Um, and the way it did this by way of the joint statement was to encourage a dialogue um, between tribunals and parties um, and among parties themselves um, to mitigate against the effects of um, the pandemic and to make use of um, institutional rules, um, case management techniques um, and also technology. Secondly, what we've been seeing, um, and very much consistent with um, the, the joint statement made by the arbitral institutions, um, is that we're seeing the institutions themselves um, issuing guidelines or you know, the equivalent. Um, so the, I think the most detailed, comprehensive set of guidelines we've seen um, has been the guidance note issued um, by the ICC um, in April. Um, and these guidelines, or rather this guidance note, has two main components. Um, the first um, is, a, is a set of guidance on mitigating against COVID-19 um, related um, delays. And it does that by referring to existing case management tools, um, which the parties to ICC arbitrations have. So, for example, you know, the fact that you've always been able um, to conduct hearings um, using audio or video conferencing facilities. Um, and then it also refers to various tools you can use to achieve um, you know, efficiency, and that's both old and new tools. And an, ex an example of a new tool would be that you know, the ICC at the moment um, is requiring you know, all requests for arbitration to be submitted um, electronically. The guidance note also contains guidance on um, the organization of uh, virtual hearings. So it gives um, useful guidance for tribunals on when it's appropriate to direct um, a full virtual hearing. Um, it identifies various um, procedural issues which tribunals should consider for virtual hearings. And it also includes a checklist um, for a protocol um, on virtual hearings. So that, that's really been the most detailed thing we've seen come out of the institutions is, is the guidance note from um, the ICC. Um, we've also seen the HKIAC, so in Hong Kong that's our local institutional, uh, sorry, our local international um, arbitral institution um, and, and consistent with the HKIAC generally this is a more sort of light touch approach and, and what they did was um, last month um, to issue the HKIAC guidelines um, for virtual hearings. That contains practical advice um, for example, on preserving confidentiality um, and security, the, you know, the integrity of virtual hearings. Um, and it also you know, includes practical tips on how to ensure that um, you have integrity um, when you're giving you know, live evidence um, remotely. It also makes it clear that the HKIAC will support you, you know, with IP and cloud-based video conferencing facilities like you know, the, that we're talking here about things like Zoom and WebEx. Um, and then you've then got, um, I thought I'd mention another um, fairly local to us um, set of guidelines issued is um, from Singapore. Um, uh, what Singapore did, and I quite like this, was SIAC issued their COVID-19 FAQs or frequently asked questions. Again, a fairly sort of light touch approach. And what they do, among other things, is ask now that you know, all documents be submitted electronically um, and they clarify that the rules um, do not preclude um, the use of um, virtual hearings. Wow, so there's a lot of new guidance out there. 
Um, but if you're a party or a tribunal and confronted with these new uh, procedures, what, what advice would you have, Robert? What, what should parties and tribunals consider in particular? Um, well, I think really for, for, for both parties and tribunals, it's a case of you know, spotting where, um, you know, where, the, where the friction and where the tensions might be, where the challenges are. Um, and from the party's point of view, um, and certainly from my experience, um, we're not really seeing a huge impact at the pre-hearing stage. We're not seeing COVID-19 causing a huge impact on those pre-hearing stages um, of an arbitration. And of course, that's not surprising because um, you know, most stages of an arbitration, whether we're talking about you know, submission of statements of case or, or, or whatever else, you know, they take place electronically anyway. Um, I mean, what you might see and what we are seeing is, you know, some delays, you know, minor delays to, to various stages, you know, things like document production, you know, it might take longer, for example, to extract documents from, you know, I don't know, a factory, for example, if, you know, you've got some travel restrictions and, you know, lockdown and things like that. But I think in those situations, um, you know, where parties are behaving, you know, reasonably sensibly, um, and, uh, you know, you've got a, a sensible tribunal, which hopefully you do have, you're going to see a certain amount of sort of flexibility, I think, when it comes to, to things like that. Um, what, I, what I think is more problematic, um, uh, and I've certainly experienced this, um, you know, personally recently, is around um, hearings, because, you know, as we all know, parties to heavily contested hearings, whether litigation or arbitration, um, can struggle to agree on anything. Um, at all. Um, so, you know, there is a very realistic prospect of parties being unable to agree on whether, for example, you know, a hearing should be completely rescheduled, um, whether the arbitration should move to a full virtual hearing, or whether instead you should have a partial virtual hearing, by which I mean, um, you know, a physical hearing with you know, virtual elements um, in, incorporated. Uh, and the reason, you know, these sort of areas where I think you have real practical difficulties um, is that there is always, I think, in or very often in, in litigation and arbitration, an assumption that if one party wants something, so whether that's a, you know, rescheduling or an adjournment of the hearing um, or a full virtual hearing, there is an assumption, I think, a cynical one, um, that if the other party wants it, well, it must be because it confers some tactical advantage on them, so I'm going to have to say no. Um, and then, you know, on, on the other side of the fence, you know, when we're looking at, you know, the tribunal itself, you know, let's say you are a tribunal, who, you know, which is tasked with deciding, you know, how to proceed um, in the face of this sort of type of disagreement between the parties, you know, for example, whether to, you know, reschedule um, a hearing or to order a, a full or, or, or partially virtual hearing, you know, it's difficult. Um, it is difficult. And, um, you know, the sort of factors which a tribunal is going to need to take into consideration will be things like, you know, the nature and length of the hearing, um, the complexity of the case, the number of participants, um, you know, and things like whether rescheduling would cause, you know, an, uh, you know a particularly excessive um, delay. Um, we in Hong Kong had an interesting example of this um, very recently. In fact, just a week ago, um, we had a hearing, um, a two-day merits hearing, um, where the claimant, so we're acting for the respondents, where the claimant had applied um, for a full virtual hearing um, on the basis that 
you know, their council was based um, in London um, and uh, their witnesses were based in mainland China. Now, we opposed their application, um, not on the basis that we didn't read um, the, the joint institutional note and, and, and didn't think that we ought to be um, collaborative and, and communicative. Um, quite the contrary, I mean, we, just, we took the view, well, that, you know, most of our team, um, certainly the legal team and some of our witnesses were based um, in Hong Kong. Um, and we, you know, we said it would be more appropriate to um, have a physical hearing in Hong Kong at the HKIAC with virtual elements you know, incorporated to accommodate the fact um, that the um, claimants, witnesses and, and legal counsel were, were based out of Hong Kong. We said, in effect, there's no basis to keep us shut out of the um, HKIAC hearing room. Now, we, we successfully opposed that application. And the reason was that the tribunal was able to use existing case management powers um, to allow witnesses to testify by video conference, so really nothing unusual there, um, but also to permit, to give leave um, to the legal teams as well to advocate um, remotely. And what the tribunal found was that principles of equal treatment and fairness um, don't necessarily require the parties to be in exactly the same position. They've got to be treated equally, they've got to be treated fairly, and they've got to have the same opportunity to present their case. But it doesn't mean that they have to be in exactly the same um, situation. Now, what that meant in the end was that we had a hearing which was um, partly physical, but with partial virtual elements. And I've got to say, it didn't really feel that different to a pre-COVID-19 hearing, because in international arbitration, um, as I think I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, um, you know, it's very common to have people based um, in, in you know, different geographical locations and, and for people to um, participate remotely. And, and the rules have, uh, have anticipated that situation um, for years. Um, from my point of view, I think the most um, practical uh, difference with this type of hearing, and it, it's somewhat prosaic or mundane even to say, but it was really things around social distancing, um, was that we ended up needing a much bigger hearing room, even though we had fewer physical participants. We actually needed a much bigger hearing room um, than usual because, you know, the lawyers had to have a certain distance between them, the lawyers and the tribunal had to have a certain distance between them, the interpreters and the court transcribers as well had to have a certain difference between them. So it was that sort of slightly more, as I say, you know, prosaic um, administrative or logistical issue, um, which uh, was important um, and one that I really noticed the difference with. It's great. Thank you so much, Robert, for joining us today and for taking the, the time to reflect on these issues. Uh, Dentons is a global legal practice providing client services worldwide through its member firms and affiliates. This episode is not designed to provide legal or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Please see Dentons.com for legal notices.